Good morning. Well, I'm glad to see you. Wouldn't be much point in my standing up here if it wasn't for you. I could have sat right there and done that if you weren't here. I am uh, a native of the state. I'm really from the Louisville area, but I've spent a lot of time stomping around through central and south central Kentucky. I'm very much familiar with the folks who are from around here. I've got an aunt who lives right here in Nicholasville. I'm kind of hoping to see her, perhaps. My grandmother was from uh, Paris, and we spent a lot of time going to Paris. My grandmother on the other side lived over in Menifee County, and we spent a lot of time in Montgomery County. That's where I became familiar with Kyle's grandfather and his father and his great-grandfather and his uncle, who I am not allowed to call Herbie anymore. I think he, they want him to be called Robert. Uh, but Herbie was a good friend of mine during those days and loved going and worshiping with the good people at Reed Village. And that's how I became familiar with his family. And uh, he's just been a good boy all the time that I've known him. Of course, he's a great, big, enormous man now, so I guess it's inappropriate to call him a boy. I want to just tell those of you who didn't already hear, I, I, I'm here to be useful. I don't want to just... Get up here and yammer a little bit, and whether it's good or bad, you just kind of have to judge on that. I'd be happy to sit down with you or with a friend or with somebody that you've been working with, and we can start talking about things that may be questions or issues or things that you've always wanted to talk about or something that they wanted to talk about, people who need a little more direction, whatever it is. I know you've got Kyle here, and I know he's great use to you for that. But I want you to know that I'm available and happy to talk about anything. If you've got somebody in mind that you think would be benefiting from a visit, someone who needs to be encouraged, whatever it is, if I can be of use to that. Now, I'm going to go back to Louisville tonight and take my wife home, but I'm available as soon as I get up in the morning. I'm, I can be right back over here if you want me here. I can do that. We can meet for some cause before. I'll do whatever it is that you guys want to try. If you've got a fence that needs to be put up, I'll dig some post holes, whatever. I, I'm just here to be useful. And I, I want to to leave an impact that's better than it was when I arrived. And if I can do that, then I feel like I've served the purpose that God's put me here for. Now, I also want to tell you that we're going to do this together. And if we don't do this together, we're just not going to get very far. So I'm going to encourage you to open your Bible. We're going to be talking about some things from James. We're going to get to the nuts and bolts of being a disciple. There are such important things. And during our Bible study period... We talked about the idea that maturity is what we're looking for. We're trying to get to the point where God takes us as babes in Christ and grows us and causes and an, uh, an incites growth within us so that we go from being ignorant babies who just make messes to full-grown spiritual adults who help other people find the food that they need and the glory that God deserves and all along the way to benefit the people who are around them. And there are very few places that are more helpful in this practical sort of pursuit of maturity than the book of James. James, I think, is the Proverbs of the New Testament. There's something every so many verses is just a powerful punch in the face that the devil just has to absorb. If you'll do these things that we're talking about in the book of James, the devil will have to flee from you. And if you'll pick them back up again tomorrow, he'll have to flee again. He'll have to find new ways to get at you. And trust me when I say he will, but you can keep him guessing by continuing to grow. And that's really our goal today. So I want to talk to you a little bit about James 2. Now, 
growing up in the church, around the people of God, I heard a lot of stuff out of James 2. It was predominantly from verse 14 on to the end of the chapter. I am not going to predominantly spend my time in that part of the, of the chapter. I'm going to predominantly spend my time in the first half of this. And I'm going to show you at the end why that is. So let's go and look here in James 2 and let's just begin reading. Before we do, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been treated poorly? Have you ever been disrespected or disappointed or disavowed, maybe disenfranchised, all those D words? Have you ever, ever had those things happen to you? You ever feel like you've been made to feel apart, separate, like you don't belong? You should be uncomfortable being here. You're not one of us. You ever been made to feel that way? There are things about that that are so wrong because we have been made by God all of one blood, all the humans of the earth. And the experiences that we have are common to man. Not white men, not white people from Kentucky, not white southerners, common to man. And the idea is that there is God and there is us. There are animals, but us is all there is among humans. And the people in James' time had a problem with prejudice. And if you're being honest today, you're going to say you've got a problem with prejudice too. And you say, well, I'm not prejudiced. I'd love everybody the same. That's a lie. You love your kids more than other people's kids. You're prejudiced for your kids. You may not be prejudiced against those other people's kids. You are prejudiced about your family. You are prejudiced about the place you work. You're prejudiced about the cats over the cards. You are prejudiced about Chevy over GM, uh, excuse me, over Ford and vice versa. You have prejudices. They, they are there and you have to admit that. I'm going to tell you today we're going to deal with some uncomfortable stuff. You may have prejudices in reference to people of different colors than you. Of people who have different backgrounds than you, people of different socioeconomic factors than you are experiencing, people of different education backgrounds, people who sound different, look different, etc. And James is going to deal with that. I'm going to tell you something. You will not do yourself any favors by skipping the first 13 verses of James 2 and jumping and condemning the people who believe in faith alone using 14 through 26. And just forgetting the rest of it because you need to deal with your biases. You need to deal with your prejudices and so do I. Because until we're just like Jesus, we all got work to do. Are we agreed on that so far? So let's read James 2 starting in verse 1. Finally, <clears throat> my brethren, love how he starts this. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? 
If you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For if he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you did not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown mercy. No mercy, excuse me. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Look at how he begins a couple of major thoughts in these 13 verses with this phrase. My brethren... That's a great way to start if you're trying to get everybody on the same page. If you're trying to get everybody to see everybody the same way, start with the idea. My brethren, we're in this together. I didn't know you all before I got here. Many of you I've never met before this day. But I do know this. You are my brothers and my sisters. I believe I can count on you. I believe you would be dependable. I think you could give me the things that I need out of my brothers and sisters in this life. My, this feels a little confining. I'll just go ahead and tell you. When he says, my brethren, do not hold faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Do you look at that and say to yourself, well, I don't do that. I don't, I don't have any prejudices or biases. I do not view other people in an unfavorable way. I'm never snobby or snotty or prejudiced or partial or discriminatory. I don't show favoritism. I'm just not one of those kind of people. I'm very noble. I'm a really honorable person, really. I'm pretty terrific, if it's going to be told the truth. I mean, really. Well, I'm going to present to you some ideas that you may find yourself more guilty of than you'd like to admit, and it'd be better if you go ahead and admit it so you can get to work on it. It's better not to hide these things. Do not be deluded about who you are. I'm just going to tell you. The sooner you get to the admission of these things, the sooner God can work on you. And I'm also going to tell you, there's no sense in anybody in this room being judgmental about anybody else because that person has a prejudice that you don't have. Because we all have some. Let me, let me show you some of the examples. Are you prejudiced about people's appearance? Did you know that pretty people have it easier in this world than the rest of us? Did you know that? Pretty people live in a bubble. There's all kinds of nice things that happen for them. The road is paved a little smoother. Things go a little better for them. Pretty girls get less tickets than uh, ugly girls who drive fast. Did you know that? It's true. It's a true story. The way you look gives people something that appeals to them. Have you ever done that? You ever viewed one person different because one's pretty and one's not so pretty? You say, well, I would never do that. Come on. I'm not saying in the traditional sense or in necessarily the classical sense, but the person you ended up marrying is because you thought they were good looking. Now, maybe they married you because they took pity, but somebody thought somebody was good looking. And the reality is, there are some things that we, we look. When someone looks like they're really put together, they're acceptable. There was a, an experiment that was done by a university years ago where they took these two different guys out on the road where it was legal to hitchhike. 
There's some parts of the roads it's illegal to hitchhike. You're not supposed to ever do that. It's against the law. But there are some places where it's perfectly acceptable for you to stand on the side of the road, toss your thumb up, and give somebody the idea, I would like a ride if you could give it to me to the next place that I'm going. And what they did was they put somebody in nice clothes with a pressed shirt and looked like they'd showered and shaved and they just looked like a clean, ordinary guy. Somebody whose car had broken down and they were just looking for a ride. That guy got picked up 10 times more often than the guy who looked shabby. Guy who had holes in his pants. The guy who looked like he was dirty. The guy looked like he'd been either working or living outside. Something like that. That guy did not get picked up nearly as often as the guy who looked like he had his act together. Do you ever do that? Do you ever determine somebody's good or bad based on their appearance and not based on what they've done? Do you assume certain things about people because they wear suits to work? Do you assume certain things about people because they smell bad? Do you assume certain things? And the truth of the matter is, the appearance of a person sometimes does that. Well, what about ancestry? What about the racial and ethnic background? Here we are in the heart of Kentucky. We were one of those in-betweener states, you know, during the whole Civil War thing, right? Surely there's no racism in Kentucky. We love white people and black people and yellow people. Listen, as long as sort of lightish tan people start calling brown people white and black, we're going to have problems. As long as we keep talking about these extremes, we're going to have problems. But the truth of the matter is, racism is alive and well. The only place where you can control that is in your heart. You say, well, I'm not a racist. I, don't, I believe everybody. Do you react differently to a young white man coming up to your car than you would a young black man coming up to your car? What if both of them were just going to tell you your gas can, your gas tank thing was open? That both of them were going to do that. Did you roll your window all the way down for the white guy? But the black guy be like, there's a story about a, a church that was right downtown in a city, not, like, not unlike this one. And an older black gentleman tried to come into their assembly. And he was denied entry. This was many years ago. And the preacher was right there. And the, uh, the old black fellow said, uh, they, they wouldn't let me in. And the preacher, rather than dealing with that, and dealing with the people who thought he should not be in there. Rather than doing that, he said, well, maybe you should pray on that. Real standard preacher cop-out move, you know. You should pray on that. I don't know what to do, so I'm going to tell you to pray. That ought to be the first thing we tell everybody all the time, but unfortunately, sometimes that's what we do. So he saw this black gentleman a few days later, and he just felt really guilty about what had happened, and he's, he's like, well... Did you, did, you, did, you, did you pray about that? And the old black gentleman said, Yes, yes I did, preacher. I, I sure did. And I'll tell you something. The Lord spoke to me. And the preacher said, Did he really? And he said, Sure he did. The Lord told me he'd been trying to get in that church for 30 years and they didn't let him in either. Do you have a view that it's okay to have people in your community who are of a different ethnic background than you, who are black or Arabic or they're 
uh, Asian or whatever. It's okay for them to be in the community. It's even okay for them to be your neighbors, but they can't date your kids. It's okay for them to be members of the church, but they're not going to become part of your physical family. Now, I had a lady tell me in a Bible class in the Lord's church once upon a time that I had to admit that it's hard on mixed race kids in our culture. You have to admit it's hard on those kids and I said, are you telling me that you're only being racist for the children? And she said, you just have to admit it's easier on the kids. I said, you know what it's also easier on the kids is if they don't become Christians. And I'm not going to advocate that. It's easier for them to go with the flow and just do whatever everybody else is doing. It's easier for them to smoke pot rather than say, I don't do that. It's easier for them to drink when everybody else drinks instead of, I don't do that. It's easier for them to give in and have sex with people who aren't their spouse. That's not something I'm going to recommend to them. Is that something you'd recommend to them? Our conversation ended immediately. There was nothing else to be said. In that same Bible study, this lady said to me, People just prefer to be with folks who are like them. And so we got a church in Louisville that's predominantly black. And it's in a part of town where there's a predominant population. And she said, like that. And I said, so people tend to worship close to where they are. She goes, yeah. I said, I know where you live. You drove past two other churches to get to this one today. We still didn't talk about that anymore either. I'm going to tell you something. Racism is a disgusting thing. And it is still alive. And I'll tell you where it's alive. It's in the, in the quiet little corners of our hearts. Where we look at people differently and we think of them differently and we fear a little bit and we worry a little bit simply because someone's color is different than ours. And that is prejudicial. That is bias. That is holding the faith of our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Because there's only people. That's all there is. You need to search your heart for anything that's else. Well, what about age? You ever have any prejudices about people based on their age? You're like, oh, I wouldn't do that. Come on now. You don't ever see teenagers with their pants hanging low or with a hat turned sideways or listen to some music that you don't understand how that's music at all and think to yourself, what brilliant children those must be. You don't ever look at those folks and say, what's wrong with kids today? You ever do that? Do you assume that when someone says, I'm 15, you assume you have got to be an idiot? Do you ever do that? I do that all the time. I know foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Rod of correction will drive it far from him. I know that's true. And I know sometimes people encourage teenagers to prolong that adolescence and it makes it difficult for them. But you know what? I also know that young people tend to think of older folks a certain way too. You assume people who are real gray-headed or maybe instead of turning gray, their hair just turned loose. Do you assume that they're a little crusty, a little curmudgeonly? A little grumpy? Do you assume that maybe they're old-fashioned or they can't learn things? Let me tell you something. 
The reason those stereotypes on both ends of that spectrum are there is because it is so often true. Teenagers are so frequently rebellious. Teenagers are so frequently dumb. They make such dumb choices sometimes. And there's so many of them that do that. And so many of them are rebellious. That happens so frequently that all of them get a bad name for that. It's also true that so many old people get so grumpy because they choose to stop growing. They choose to stop learning things. They lose their curiosity and they're just what they're going to be. Leave me be. I'm sorry, but that's just the way I am. And I hear people say stuff like that and I say, the way you am is broke. It needs to be fixed. The reason those two things exist like that is because people have made it largely true. And what you've got to do is exactly what Paul told Timothy. Let no one despise your youth. He's not saying you stand up for yourself and don't let people say you're young, you don't know stuff. He's saying don't act like the standard young person whose head is full of mush. Get some sense about you. Be godly. Treat people the way they're supposed to be like a mature person would. Do that. And what does, what does he say? And what does, what does he say to Titus and Titus 2? He says the older women are supposed to be sober and they're supposed to teach the younger women. The older men are supposed to have good judgment and learn the young guys what they're supposed to do. Don't be a crusty old curmudgeonly loner hermit crab who sits in a corner and points his finger and complains about stuff. Mentor people and pull them into your orbit so that they can be benefited by you. Don't be the standard old person. Don't be the standard young person. Don't be the standard middle-aged person. Defy the odds. Bust the statistics. Be the anomaly. But in order for you to do that, you have got to give up any of the biases you have about age. Let people tell you what they are. Let them show you what they are. Do you have any biases toward people with achievements. And you're like, oh, well, some of the others may be, but I don't have that. Let me tell you something about you that you probably haven't thought about much. You're an American. And in America, we like winners. We don't like losers. We don't believe in losing. Winning is our thing. That's what we do. And so if you're a winner, if you're an achiever, if you're a producer, if you're a maker, if you're a earner, if you're a six, if you're a closer, we like you. Come sit next to me. Let's have lunch together. Let's have dinner together. Maybe you'll foot the bill. <laughs> Let's do something together. I, I, maybe your winning will rub off on me. Maybe I'll be better just by having a little closeness with you. And the people, meanwhile, who are having trouble, who are struggling to make it. People who are going through a bad patch. People who've lost their jobs. People who aren't maybe as clever. Maybe they haven't learned some of the stuff. Maybe they haven't got the degrees. We're just like, oh, you're kind of a burden. You're a bit of a drain. <laughs> and I'm not going to waste much time with you. I mean, obviously, you just waste whatever potential I'd pour out on you. And all through the Bible, God is constantly telling us to encourage people, to lift up the faint-hearted, to support those who are weak. Do you know what all those people are? They're losers. They've lost something. They've lost a battle. They've lost their faith. They've lost their courage. They've lost something. And Americans were like, that is not cool, man. Win. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Come on. 
for crying out loud. Have some dignity. And we get this idea that what dignity is, is you don't show any weakness. That's not even a second cousin to dignity. Dignity is representing your humanity with courage and ability, even in the face of opposition, being consistent, being full of integrity, not compromising who you genuinely are simply because of hardship. That's dignity. Not being embarrassed about losing. And so as a result of this, do you know what happens? Men are not allowed to cry. Did you know that? It's against the rules. Men are not allowed to cry. Did you know that? Cry it up! Did anybody hear that when you were a kid? If you're a boy growing up? Cry it up! You better cut out that crying or I'll give you something to cry about. I not only have heard that, I have said that. Well, is it okay to have feelings and emotions? Is it okay to let those things out? It is. You're equipped with those things. What I don't understand is how we get to the point where we will let a boy be viciously rage-filled with anger, but we won't let him cry. Anger's an emotion too. What's wrong? Because crying is weakness. And we've decided that's a loss. If you're crying, it's because you lost something. We don't lose. And we just don't go in for that kind of stuff. There's nobody... Nobody here at the table that's average. What kind of preaching do we want? I'm just going to go ahead and talk about Kyle like he's not even here. What kind of preaching do we want? Do you want average preaching? Don't you want? Oh, he's pretty good. Is that what we want? Not even in the church. We're like, no, no. Only the best. Who are we going to have for gospel meetings? Well, if we don't plan fast enough, we get Phil Arnold. But otherwise... We want the best. We're going to find whoever's the best and we're going to bring them in. And it's going to be an event. It's going to be huge. And because our decisions were so well made, we're going to win. Win what? Souls? Oh, yeah, souls. That's what we're interested in, right? We get to the point where we got really good in the 70s and the 80s at winning arguments. And we got so good at winning arguments, we started losing souls. And what we needed to always be interested in was winning souls. And we could every once in a while just let an argument be lost. If it meant we get another opportunity to win that soul, I'm willing to lose an argument. I'm willing to let them perceive that they got the upper hand if that means we get another chance to talk about this. You're like, well, wait a second. The truth needs to be defended. Get your head out of the sand. The truth will be fine without all of us. You need to defend your hope. You need to be able to represent to people what it means to be a Christian in your life. And that means you cannot, cannot decide that winners are better than losers. What about affluence? You going to let that affect the way you think about things? I'm going to just ask you a question. It's going to be a little uncomfortable. Are you, do you automatically assume anything about somebody that you know makes more money than you? Do you assume anything about them? Yeah. We all have a view of whatever we think rich is, and none of us thinks we're rich, typically. I have one friend who is a surgeon, and he told me 
and we've, we've known each other now for about 20 years, he just told me last year that he was rich. He said it right out loud. And we were in a room by ourselves, so he could say it. Well, we don't think of ourselves as rich. And I'm going to tell you the disparity between my income and his is vast. But compared to 90% of the world's population, I am Bill Gates rich. It's all a matter of perspective. But we've got it boiled down, again, largely because we're Americans. If somebody has less education than me, if they've got less money than me, they're a little bit less than me. And if somebody's a little more educated than me, or they've got a little more money than me, they're snobs. And they think an awful lot of themselves, don't they? Oh, well, I guess your degree is going to whatever. and you, All your money, just fix your problem. It's just ridiculous. Circumstances, that's all any of those things are. And they're so subjective to comparison in the moment, in the place, in that time, that they don't mean anything. I loved what the brother said this morning about stewardship. That's really what it's about. And if we walk around pitting people against each other in our minds because of any of these things, this is better than that thing, that circumstance is better than this circumstance, etc., 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 what we have done is sinned. Sinned. This passage has never gotten enough attention because it says really clearly prejudice is sinful. Bias like this and holding the faith of Christ in partiality is sinful. It's not just a bad idea. It's not just unwise. It's not just unhealthy. It's sinful. It is something of which you must repent. And to whatever degree it lies in you, repent of it today. And if you don't get it done today, repent again tomorrow. And if you don't get it done tomorrow, keep repenting until it's gone. And if it comes back up, put it right back down and repent some more. What he says about partiality is that it's unreasonable. Number one, verses 5 through 7 makes it clear, God has never used the winners, the wealthy, the highly educated, the predominant, the majority to do anything. Have you noticed that? He's never used any of those things to get stuff done. He always uses the minorities. He always uses the poor. He always uses the common. He always uses just the regular Joes because the point of it is is that we find the glory in Him, not in us. Apollos is a fascinating study because he's one of the only really eloquent people in the Bible. He's one of the only highly educated, really eloquent guys. Even the Apostle Paul, read everything he says about himself. He's very educated. He's very smart. He's highly educated in law, but he'll tell you he's a poor speaker. I've heard many preachers tell you, you wouldn't hire the Apostle Paul to be your local evangelist because he may be great with people. He may be all kinds of educated. He may know all kinds of stuff about the Bible, but when he gets up, he's just not a very good speaker. Would we be guilty of that? Would we ever be guilty of, I really enjoyed a meeting more because I liked the guy, the way he talked, than I did about the messages he gave. It was the same truth, but because it was a little exciting or it was a little entertaining. Please don't get me wrong. I'm doing the best I can. I think every preacher should. But when the focus starts being on what the presentation is like and how it makes you feel instead of what the truth is and how that's supposed to change you, 
We've got it all backwards. He says, to hold the faith that, that helps us in partiality, it's unreasonable. That's not what God has ever done. He also says it is unloving. What is the royal law? I love the way he says this here. What's the royal law? It's the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. It is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the second great commandment, he says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on these two things hang everything God has ever written before this. The law and the prophets exist to support those two pillars. Everything is about that. And when we hold the faith that we have in partiality, we treat people differently because of the external issues that make them different than us, he says that is not love. You can't save somebody you don't love. You can't help somebody you don't love. You have to have their best interest at heart. And that is what he's saying here. And finally, just, he tells us it's a violation of the law. When you're talking about sin, you're talking about trespassing, you're talking about transgression. It's a violation of the law. And he says if you're guilty of one part, you're guilty of all of it. So this business about I'm doing pretty good in nine out of ten fields in reference to the obedience of God. I'm obeying God real good. I have been really noble in my treatment of people who are differently educated than me. Been very noble, people who are poorer than me and richer than me. But I don't like dark-skinned people. Is that okay? Is that fine? I mean, I've got all the other stuff. I'm only, I'm only biased against, you know, dark-skinned people. I'm only biased against one. It's just a little thing. And everybody has to have a vice, right? I'd love to hear the passage that supports that, by the way. Anybody have that one handy? Well, you have to have a vice. No, you, no, you don't. You don't have to have it. You shouldn't have it. You shouldn't want to have it. There's nothing biblical about that idea. You don't have to have a pet sin that keeps you distanced from other people or from God. You don't have to have that. In fact, everything that you have that's like that, you have to start weeding your garden to get rid of. Slowly but surely. Well, in addition to being law breakers... Verses 12 and 13 here, he gets to something that is really hard. The distinction between justice and mercy. How many people here love a good crime story where the bad guy gets caught and punished? How many, how many people like that story? If you have to hear about crime, do you not want to hear about somebody going to jail? Isn't that what you want to hear? Somebody got busted, somebody went to jail, somebody got the chair, something like that. That's what I'm talking about. My donut buddy over here. Boy, we're awfully keen on justice. Law and order. That's me right here. I'm a big advocate of the Second Amendment. I got a gun in my car right now. I don't carry one when I preach. I get kind of excited. I don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> I've reconciled myself to the possibility that should somebody invade my home, try to hurt my wife or my daughter, that I may have to do some damage, may have to do some harm to that person. I, I've kind of reconciled myself to that. 
Because that's justice, right? Well, we love these superhero movies, don't we? Got bad guys who are beyond the reaches of human justice, and so we're going to bring super meta justice to them. We've even left our galaxy now to get out there and bring in the, the good guys from way out there. Tony Stark's got to really raise his game on that armor to get you know, up in space. When was the last time you thought about mercy? I want everybody who breaks the rules to get punished. Really? Really? Is that what you want? How about we start with you? How about that? I want justice. That's what I want. Is that, is that really? Much? I don't. I don't want justice. I don't want, I don't want any justice. I want mercy for me. I'll have justice for you. But I want mercy for me. I don't want God looking at me in a judgmental way. I don't want God looking at me different than he looks at anybody else. I want God to just pour mercy on me. I want him to overlook all of the little foibles and mistakes. I want him to look past and give grace for everything that I'm mistaken about. All the little errors that I make because I'm ignorant. I want him to look over those things. I want him to be kind to me. I want him to love me and pity me. I want God to pity me. I want him to look at me and say, you poor soul, you just didn't know any better or you just couldn't help yourself. I want God to give me grace. I want him to give me mercy. Isn't that what I want? Isn't that what you want? If you don't say that, you're deluded about your state today. You need grace real bad. You need all the mercy God will pour on you. The carelessness with which we execute life is mind-bogglingly anti-God. Did you know that? Just the silliness with which we carry ourselves from day to day. The fact that we watch TV shows and things that don't matter to anything and are not important at all and do not improve on us? Do, do we want God to execute justice about stuff like that? But man, if somebody just crosses me just a little bit, I'm just I'm ready to rain it down. Bring the justice! My wife and I have occasionally said, I don't, it might not be a bad idea if they brought back public hanging. What do you all think about that? We talk about a deterrent. <laughs> Don't have to do that too many times before all of a sudden people start getting the idea. Am I right? And we start thinking like that. We get infuriated because somebody cuts us off or they drive in the emergency lane or they drive in the medium and we're like, that guy right there. Where's a cop when you need one? Someone breaks the line at the movie theater and jumps ahead two people and goes, Hey! That's wrong. We want somebody to take care of that. Call a manager. We need Linda to get over here and say, I need to see a manager. And what does he say here in verses 12 and 13? You better speak and do as people who are going to be judged. Let's never forget, being in the church of Christ is not your gold ticket to heaven. You are still going to be judged by the law of liberty. And he says, you better use your liberty to be a blessing to other people. And he goes on a little further. He'd say, judgment without mercy is going to be shown to the one who didn't show mercy to other people. In other words, 
put yourself in other people's shoes, walk a mile in their moccasins, paddle a little while in their canoe, however many, whichever metaphor you like better, and put yourself in that situation and say, what would I want if I was in that circumstance? And you will always answer, always, mercy. And that requires a great deal of patience. And so, let me ask you before we proceed to the end of this passage, which is where we get into the whole faith without works is dead. Let me just ask you, could this be what he had in mind and not faith only salvation, Calvinism and the false teachings of the Baptist church? Could this be what he's talking about when he says faith without works is dead? You know, since they're right next to each other and stuff. Could that be what he's doing? Because I'm going to tell you what James wants to know. I, I wouldn't have messed with James. I, I might would have liked to talk to Paul because Paul... You know, he, he sounds like a debater. You know, he goes back and forth. James ain't fooling with you. He is not playing. James gets right down to it and it's just right in the face with whatever the truth is. And he don't care because truth don't care about your feelings. That's the way James deals with stuff. And I'm going to tell you what he says. Do you believe? Then show me. What are you going to do about it? Do you believe that God is the Savior? Do you believe Jesus is going to show you mercy? If you believe that, what are you going to do about it? Because faith, he says, without works is dead. What does it profit, verse 14? My brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and that by works faith was made Perfect. And the scripture is fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise. Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Could it be that James is saying, if you believe that the gospel is really for all people, show me. If you believe that everybody who wears the blood of Christ like a cloak are brethren, show me. If you believe that God is going to show you mercy, show me. Because here's the deal. We have to accept everybody. We don't get to choose. We just don't. Now, I will tell you that in our world today, people are mistaking uh, accepting people for approving. Very different things. You wanted God to accept you just as you came to Him. Were you a sinner when you came to God? Did He not have to accept you as a sinner in order to save you? 
I want Him to accept me. Do I want Him to approve of my sin? There'd be no point of that, would there? So likewise, when someone comes in that door and someone comes into your life, someone comes to your place of work, someone comes to your front door, and they come in and they don't sound right. They use language that you would not use. They're dressed in ways that you find immodest. They're doing things in their life that you find immoral. It means you accept them as they are without approving of what they do, and you start helping them see what they need to see with patience and virtue and long-suffering, and mercy, and grace, and kindness. You don't excuse their sin, and you do not accept that that sin stays. You help them see their way out of it. Then you have to appreciate everybody. You know, not everybody's like you. Did you notice that? There were a couple of clues. When you look in the mirror, they see something totally different. And you may look at the mirror and you see one... Actually, what you see is not even what they see. I, I'm appalled, just shocked. Somebody tells me a picture and they say, look at this picture of you. I'm like, who is this fat, ugly guy? He keeps jumping in the middle of the camera when I give him a picture. You don't even see yourself the way other people see you. It's, it's, it's that way. But you know what? You bring something to the table that I don't. And so does she, and so does she, and so does he, and so does everybody in this room, and so does everybody on the planet. There is room in the kingdom for everybody. Every color of skin, every background, every language that they may speak, every level of education, whether they're poor or rich or somewhere in between, whether they're young or they're old, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male nor female, there's neither bond nor free. In Christ, we are all... And we've got to learn to appreciate people. Let me tell you one of my favorite things about Expressway. There's two big ones. Number one, it is an incubator for growth. There are churches in Louisville where the preaching is better on a consistent basis. I can admit that. I don't, I'm just not that proud. I can just let you know that. But there's not a better environment for growth in the city of Louisville, I don't think. And let me tell you why. It's because of the second thing. We got tons of weirdos. We're, we're loaded with them. We're lousy with weird people. And that's because the elders somewhere long ago decided... This was going to be a haven for people to develop whatever it is that they bring to the table for the sake of the gospel and for the kingdom. And that means we accept all kinds of folks. We got nerds, we got jocks, we got computer people, we got the computer illiterate. We got hard working, manual labor, callous having guys. And we've got guys who are engineers, haven't touched anything but a computer in 10 years. We got surgeons, we got lawyers, we got very poor people who, have, who are on disability. We got all kinds of stuff going on. And we have all got to learn to appreciate everybody. Whatever you bring to the table is unique to you. Nobody else does what you do. And I love that about you. And I need to love that about you. Because you can reach people I can't reach. You can say things I can't say. You can know stuff that it will take me forever to learn. You already know it. And that means we make a great team. Two at a time, ten at a time, thirty at a time, hundred at a time, two hundred at a time. We make a great team. Because we bring such different stuff to the table. So I have to appreciate that. If I want to overcome this partiality business, I have to do that. Thirdly... I have to learn to affirm everybody. It's easy to tear people down. Did you know that? 
Oh, man, I've got some good friends back home, and we don't do anything. We meet on Friday morning for coffee, and we just insult each other for two hours. It's just this brutal fest of making fun of everything that's wrong with the other guy or something he said amiss or some story that we know from back in the day. And we all take turns and we just take it. We just heap it on each other. It's easy. But then we start talking about serious things. It's a little harder. There's quietness. Nobody piles on. Nobody gets mixed up in that. We start talking about serious things and it slows all that business down. It's easy to point out what's wrong with other people. It's easy for you to point out. Let me show you something. I'm going to go ahead and show you. This is enormous. This is a big nose. It's a big nose. I've got one of those Roman noses just roaming all over my face. It's everywhere. If you point that out to me, well, okay. Now we know you can see. You make fun of something that I say, I, I get my words mixed up. I had a, a friend who used to say, I got my tongue wrapped around an axle. You know, you get all kind of. It doesn't take much to do that. It's easy to kick a man when he's down. Did you know that? But you know what takes thought and intent and purpose, effort to find what's good and accentuate it, to find something encouraging to say and speak it. To go where nobody else is going and do some kindness for somebody who needs it. That is hard. And it takes a Christian to do that. It takes a disciple of Jesus. Someone who's mirroring the image of the Lord of glory. That's the kind of person who does that kind of thing. They affirm people. There will be tons of opportunity for a person to get torn down. This world is really well set up for tearing people down, destroying dreams and hurting feelings. This world's perfect for that. In fact, the competition that's been set up in our culture is great for that. It is humbling. And if you don't succeed, you're going to get humbled pretty quickly. And there's always somebody around the corner just waiting to lambast you, to find what you've done wrong, to label it and to talk about it and to elevate it and put a light on it and put it maybe on a pedestal and maybe write a plaque and put under it and remind everybody about it. There's always a jerk who's willing to do that. And I promise you, you can scour all four of the Gospels, look as hard as you want. You'll never see Jesus do that to anybody. He is constantly doing these two things. He is comforting the afflicted and is he afflicting the comfortable. That's it all the time. That's what Jesus is doing all the time. So what do you think you should do when a man's down, when somebody's hurting, when they're suffering? Lift, raise, support, crutch, benefit, bless, encourage. That's what it means to do that. So, what is real faith? Well, I agree. It is to work in faith, to act on what you believe and be baptized. That's what the Lord commands. So, do we all have that clear? I do not believe in faith-only salvation. Does everybody understand that? I don't believe in faith-only salvation. I don't believe in any aspect of Calvinism. It's ridiculous, in fact. I believe baptism is absolutely essential. Without it, you'll be lost. I believe that. But is that what James is talking about here? What James is saying is that faith is not just something you say. You can't just talk about it. Faith is not just something that you feel. It's not just 
you know, the warm fuzzies that get developed inside you. And faith is not just something that you think. It's not just a good idea. Faith is something that you do. And so I'm going to leave you with a few thoughts. Do you really believe? Do you really believe that all have sinned and the wage of sin is death? Do you really believe that? Well, James wants to know what you're going to do about it. Because that means everybody you know has sinned. And all the people who are outside of Christ, what are they? Every one of them, they're lost. Whether your kids, your grandkids, your aunt, uncle, mom, dad, sweet old grandmother, best friend, co-worker, next door neighbor, whatever. If they have sinned, and everybody has, and they're outside of Christ, they're lost. Are you going to just keep walking around believing that and not say anything to them? Show me, James says. Do you uh, really believe Jesus is the only way? Like he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Do you believe that? Some of you are not nodding so quickly anymore because now you, you know it's getting ready to happen, don't you? James says, if that's what you believe, then what about all the friends that you have who are atheist or agnostic or Buddhist or Muslim or Jehovah's Witness or Mormon or whatever it is they are, that they are not calling on the one name of the single Savior that God sent to the earth? Oh, what are you going to do about that? Because without Jesus, what are they? I don't know what else they are, but they're not going to see the Father. Do you know where the Father is? You clear on that? He's in heaven. So if you say, no one comes to the Father except through me, do you know what you're saying? Nobody goes to heaven without Jesus. How about elders? Do you believe a church should have elders? Well, I do. Now, further than that, I believe the people in the church are responsible to submit to that eldership and even obey them. Hebrews 13, 17 says to obey them, those who rule over you. I believe that's important. James says, what are you going to do about it? Is that a first principles issue or not? I mean, we, we, can, we can slam the people who are up and down these roads worshiping this morning with instrumental music and teaching false doctrine and say, that ain't right and this is the one true church and we got all that. What about elders? How do we feel about that? Does one true church have that? Well, we're going to slam somebody's got a piano when we're not interested in developing this one thing? That, that doesn't make sense, does it? James says about all of these things, what are you going to do? So when you get down to it here in James 2, when he says, we're all in the family. We're brothers and sisters. You ever heard anybody say, you know, in this church, we're like a family? You ever heard anybody say that? We're like a family. That's almost right. We're not like a family. We are family. And the only reason we feel like a family is because we treat each other like family instead of as family. We prioritize our fleshly families over the church. We'll let unfaithful children and unfaithful parents pull us away from assemblies to celebrate birthdays and holidays. We'll allow extended family vacations to pull us away from duties that we have to the Lord's church and the Lord's people. We'll let simple, everyday family stuff keep us from supplying the need of a brother or sister because... My family's calling for me to do this simple, everyday, whatever thing, and this person's really hurting, and they're losing their faith, and they may lose their soul, and we let that take a back seat because we're like a family.
instead of we are a family. Y'all see the difference? When James says that, he wants to know, what are you going to do about it? If we're really a family, what are you going to do about it? I hope that this has been in some way helpful because faith is, in fact, the thing that's going to save. It's the thing that justified Abraham before circumcision, before the covenant, before the law of Moses. And it's the same thing that's going to justify you today because what God wants to know is, do you have enough faith to move, to change what you are into what I want you to become? And if you haven't obeyed the gospel, He's calling on you to do that. I don't know all the people who are here, whether you have or you haven't. If you have not, He's calling on you right now to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you have obeyed the gospel, He's calling on you to take the gospel out of this place and give it to people who don't have it today. That's what He's calling on you today. Do you have enough faith to do that? If we can help you obey that gospel right now, we'd like for you to come as we stand and sing to encourage you.